Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word and for the opportunity that we have to open it here complete in our language. We pray that we would not squander this opportunity, that you would help us to see what you have in it for us and that you would teach us according to it by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on May 3rd of this year, the U.S. Surgeon General released an advisory declaring that our nation has an epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of loneliness. And while some of this was exacerbated by COVID-19, the growing trends of loneliness have been growing even before then. In one sense, it's highly ironic that the current generation would feel lonely. It's ironic for several reasons. First, it's ironic because of the population of the world. We live in a world of about now almost 8 billion people. There are more people today on this planet than ever before in the history of the world. And so this means that if you're lonely, it's much easier to find another human being to talk to than it ever was. It's also ironic because of modern transportation. We can travel anywhere within a day. We can get to people quicker than we ever could before. And so this means that isolation should be a thing of the past, right? It's also ironic because of, as you know, modern communications. I mean, with the ability to text people or call people or video people around the world at in, in, instant, in an instant is, uh, would be considered miraculous by people of generations past. And so it's never been easier to uh, contact somebody else. Our phones aren't even attached to the walls anymore. They're now in our pockets. We can do it from virtually anywhere. And yet, even though more people can visit one another easier than ever before and can communicate easier than ever before, we have an epidemic of loneliness in our country. The Surgeon General's report states this. It says, recent surveys have found that approximately half of U.S. adults report experiencing loneliness. Approximately half, 50% of U.S. adults report experiencing loneliness. And this is not just found in one segment of society. There, it's, it's across the board. Increasingly, senior adults are experiencing higher levels of loneliness. Many of the reports recently are how they are seeking to curb that through robots. Having robots around their home to provide companionship. But this isn't just a problem for older folks. In fact, young adults are twice as likely to be lonely than seniors. Between adults aged 18 to 24, so this is roughly college age adults, 79% report feeling lonely compared to 41% of seniors aged 66 and older. That's 8 in 10 students of college age reporting loneliness. But again, you go, how could this be? This is the most connected generation. I mean, they've got social media, right? This is where you get social and you connect with other people. You, you should be able to, to relate and connect and not have a problem. Uh, you shouldn't feel isolated. And yet, ironically, it is often social media itself that has contributed to the high degrees of loneliness. 
the constant unending scrolling has left people, particularly, I might add, teenage girls, feeling more lonely than ever as they compare themselves to other people and feel that they are not like them. But the same can happen to the teenage boys. If you say social media is a particular problem for teenage girls, well, teenage boys, uh, the reports uh, note that, that video games, while highly popular among young males, and they feel connected, so to speak, with the people they're playing with, often leave them feeling very alone, playing all by themselves. So what this means, friends, is that statistically there are many who are here in our midst this morning who would confess feeling lonely at some level. It also means that many people who live around you, that you may interact with every day, would consider themselves lonely. It could be a family member, a friend, or a neighbor. It could be your teenage son, your elderly father, or your nephew. It could be your small group leader. It could be your friend from Bible study or that person you share a pew with every Sunday. It means that there are lonely people all around us. And of course, people can be lonely for all sorts of reasons. You can be lonely simply from moving to a new area, getting a new job, joining a new church. You don't know many people yet. It can surface even as we may be around people, but we're getting to feel lonely because the relationships around us are breaking down. Maybe it's the, our marriage relationship is not what it was and we're beginning to feel lonely. Loneliness can come from the death of a spouse. Widowhood is one of the deepest causes of loneliness. Loneliness can also come from someone being unintentionally ignored. And this can happen even to children, feeling lonely, being the neglected child in the playground, the, the one who doesn't get invited to certain parties. We all know that feeling. But whatever the reasons, when people report that they're feeling lonely, it's because they're lacking deep, close, authentic relationships. They don't have a connection with someone who knows them well. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're all alone, that they're a loner. In fact, someone can actually be alone by themselves and not feel lonely. And yet, vice versa, someone can be in a room full of people like here today and yet feel very alone. The consequences of this loneliness epidemic are significant. The Surgeon General notes how loneliness massively affects one's well-being. In fact, he makes this astounding claim. He says, loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 26 and 29% respectively. But get this, more broadly, lacking social connection can increase the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. It has a significant impact on our well-being. They also note that if someone has persistent feelings of loneliness, they are also at a higher risk of other diseases such as heart disease and stroke. Now, I, I, I quote these statistics from the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General's report and that's where I'll leave the report this morning. They report the statistics and then they go on to try to solve the problem. 
But the U.S. Surgeon General, along with the other organizations that are trying to solve this, this national epidemic of loneliness, are, their, their, their tactics, their strategy is flawed. They don't, aren't able to factor in the most basic truths. They've ruled out God, who is the creator and designer of each one of us. They don't factor in the church and even other organizations of faith. And frankly, they place too much hope in the government to solve our loneliness problem. And we don't have to look very far to see what government will do if their hands are involved. But we realize this is deeper than something that government can solve. And this is why the Bible can uniquely help us to know the why and the how of addressing loneliness. And that's what I want to do this morning. Our goal is not to lay out a plan for reversing the crisis in our country, but to provide help to those who are struggling personally. If you feel lonely today, I want you to know the hope that comes from the word of God. And maybe if you're here today and you go, you know, loneliness isn't my problem, then I encourage you to listen this morning so that you might know how you might be able to help those who are around you. That you might have a compassionate word to those who are in your circle of friends. And maybe put on your radar a problem that someone near you is struggling with that maybe you haven't thought of before. And so this morning, in order to help us overturn and, and counter loneliness, we're going to look at a two-pronged approach for how we can counter loneliness in our lives and the lives of others. A, a simple two-pronged approach with some detail in each of those prongs. And so let's begin by looking that in order to turn the tide of loneliness, we must first comprehend loneliness biblically. We must comprehend loneliness biblically. Again, I read statistics. We can understand loneliness from a health perspective, from a societal, sociological perspective, but we need to understand it uh, biblically. It's something that every human understands intellectually and experientially. We've all felt lonely at some time. We know what it means to be alone and, and the feelings that come associated with that, the sadness, the depression, the darkness, the hopelessness. And yet, we, in order to overcome loneliness, we need to understand how it fits in the storyline of Scripture. And so we'll walk through this story like acts in a play because the story of Scripture is exactly that. It's a story. And this is composed of four parts, four that you've no doubt heard of before, but creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is the basic storyline of the Bible and of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the history of the world as well. But we're going to look at this story and the, these four acts through the lens of loneliness. And so first, let's look at Act 1, loneliness unimaginable. Loneliness unimaginable. This relates to creation. And I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1, the first page of the Bible. And if you don't have a personal copy this morning, you can use one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you and turn to page one. You don't say that very often. Usually it's 1,000 something, but here we go, page one. Genesis chapter one, verse one. And kids, can you say this along with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
okay? A verse that we all know. And here at the beginning of the Bible, it begins with the assertion. It doesn't prove God, it assumes God. He is the unmoved mover. He is the one who was there before the world was created. And he's the one that brought about the creation of the world. And this God here in chapter 1 moves to create the world to display his glory. Verses 1 through 25 describe how he formed the world and he filled it with wonderful creatures, all to the praise of his glory. But then in verse 26, he does something different. He creates human beings. Let's read verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we see that after God has created all of the, the plants and animals, he then creates special beings, human beings. Chapter 2 of Genesis then goes into detail of this creation of man and woman, the male and female. It's like it rewinds just a little bit for us to be able to see the detail that God provides and how he creates these image bearers. He first creates the man. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Again, unique from the way that he created animals, he personally infused Adam with life. And verse 15 gives Adam a task to do. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God put man in the garden and everything looked great until it wasn't. After the continuous refrain of chapter 1 in which it says, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, we then come to chapter 2, verse 18, and it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be al alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Adam was alone, and God noted that this was, this was not good. And therefore, God remedied the situation by creating a female to complement him, to complement the male. And so as we finish chapter 2, we see what God intended for humanity. In that, God did not intend us to be alone, but God created us not only with the capacity for relationship, but he created us for relationship. The relationship we have here in chapter 2 between Adam and Eve is the first relationship and it is the most intimate because it was a marriage. It was between the man and the woman as they were married together. God brought them together and from their union came children. The, this man and this woman had a unique relationship for relationship, uh, a new, unique capacity for relationship that the animals didn't have. Yes, animals are able to spend time together. They understand some, there's some connection between them, but they're not able to sympathize. They're not able to relate. They're not re able, able to comprehend the inner life like humans are. Because man and woman were, are the image bearers of God. And so they have a unique relationship with God. The animals can't relate to God like we can relate to God. 
They worship him by simply existing. We worship him by words and feelings and affections. But we also see that mankind was created for relationship, not just with God, but created for relationship with one another. We're social beings. This is part of his original design. And so we see here that that in God's original creation, loneliness was unimaginable. If you pause right after Genesis 2, you've got man and woman in the garden. God is there, their creator. He's blessed them. He, he's given them the garden, all for them to eat. And, and nothing could go wrong here. This is, this is great. We are all together. We're together. We have right relationship with the Lord God Almighty. We have right relationship with one another. This is right. This is good. But as we know, it didn't stay that way. And that's where we come to act two. First, loneliness unimaginable. Well, secondly, loneliness enters. It enters the picture. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3 because Genesis 3 describes mankind's fall into sin. Whereas before they had trusted the Lord and walked with him, now they distrusted his word and rebelled against his authority. You see, when sin entered the world, loneliness entered with it. For the first time, people could be and feel lonely. The reason for this is that sin separates. Sin alienates. Sin does this first. It separates man from God. Mankind no longer had an unhindered relationship with the Lord. He was now stained with sin and, and could not remain in fellowship with the Holy God. And so he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. Chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And while every human being, including us here this morning, owe our existence to God, we are alienated from him relationally and spiritually. Now, as you will see, the situation can change. We don't have to remain alienated from him, but if it's not changed, that separation from God is finalized after death when we receive what we justly deserve as we experience the wrath of God in hell. But not only does sin separate us from God, sin separates us from one another. It destroys relationships. It causes distrust of one another. It, it causes us to lie to one another. It causes us to treat one another wickedly. And it causes us most fundamentally to focus on ourselves. Sin turns us inward. And when we turn inward, it causes us to isolate from other people. We begin to see the differences of others. We begin to criticize other people. We begin to think of our own righteousness and how good we are and we put down other people. If sin was allowed to have its full reign in each one of us, none of us could stand to live with one another. We would all be islands unto ourselves because sin repels us in its most corrupting form away from other people. And so the reason loneliness exists at all is because of sin. This isn't to say, and, I, and, I, and this is, must be emphasized, this isn't to say that if you feel lonely, it's directly attributable to your own sin but it is to say that loneliness entered humanity's existence because of the fall of man. 
And we see this right away in Genesis. In chapter 4, what is the cause of, of, of what happens after sin enters the world? Well, Cain kills his brother Abel. And God then banishes Cain to wander the earth, right? His sin separated him from his family and he was destined to this state of banishment. Now he developed, he took his wife with him and he, he still developed uh, an alternative society. But the point is he had to separate because of his sin. But the remainder of the scriptures, as we go through, we're in Genesis 4, 3 or 4, as we go through the remainder of the scriptures, we continue to see that sin separates from other people. But also, on top of that, we see that God's saints can experience loneliness. In other words, friends, loneliness is not just for the, the unbeliever. Loneliness is not just for those who are living in rampant sin. Loneliness can be the experience of God's saints here in this fallen world. And this, this brings me some encouragement that the word of God understands where we fall and that our experience is not unique. Let's look at a few examples. First is David, and you can turn to Psalm 25 for that. Psalm 25. Let's see some examples of some of God's saints who felt lonely. Psalm 25 finishes in the last section, last major section, verses 16 through 21. David offers a variety of prayers, but in all of the prayers he asks for, he's asking for relief from his troubles. Look at it with me, verse 16. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. David here is in the midst of his distresses, he's in the midst of suffering and pain. And, and where does he go? He cries out to the Lord. He's, he's praying that God would deliver him. And it's here in verse 16 that he confesses, I am lonely and afflicted. He's got foes and enemies all around him and he, and he feels like he's alone, like he's got no one else. And so he cries out to God. I think here we can take Note of David is doing what is right. He's walking the path of righteousness and yet he feels alone because he's being attacked. And I just asked you, have you ever felt alone as you've walked the path of righteousness? You've done what is needful. You've done what the word of God has called you to do. And yet you are alone in that course. David understands. The word of God understands. And so David asks for grace. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. But this, this was also true for the author of Psalm 102. So I invite you to turn to near the end of the book of Psalms to Psalm 102. We don't know the author of this psalm. But it says in the, 
the, the intro that it's a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, he's offering his prayer to Yahweh, crying out to him in his distress. And then verses 3 through 11, he uses metaphors to describe his inner state. How is he feeling in this moment? And particularly, I want to highlight verse 7 where he says, I lie awake and I, I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. In the midst of his affliction, he says, I feel lonely. I feel like I'm a lonely bird up on the housetop all by myself in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering. We see in the verses surrounding it, other similar uh, feelings that often are accompanying, often accompany loneliness. We see uh, a kind of depression in verse 4. He says, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. We see that it affects his appetite, verse 4. He says, I forget to eat my bread. There's lack of sleep, verse 7. I lie awake. He's treated poorly by others. Verse 8, those who are taunting him. There's tears, verse 9. Mingle tears with my drink. And almost feelings of purposelessness in verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. My days just continue to go on and I wither away. Friends, these biblical authors understand what it means to be lonely. But let's look at another one, Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Flip to the left to 1 Kings 19. Elijah too, the great prophet, understood what it meant to feel lonely. Now he had just come off of a great spiritual victory. He had confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and through God had worked through him and he had defeated those prophets. He had shown that Yahweh was God and therefore there should be a great, a feelings of great confidence and victory. But instead he's fearful and he runs hundreds of miles away to Mount Sinai and he's there in a cave when the Lord addresses him and he feels totally alone. Look at verse 10, 1 Kings 19, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah was there in this cave, and he felt like he was the only one in Israel. Now, as Yahweh makes clear in verse 18, he is not the only one. It is not true that he is the only one standing uh, for the Lord. Uh, the Lord says that he's got 7,000 in Israel. But nonetheless, Elijah understood the feelings of loneliness. And finally, to the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul describes this, this feeling of no one coming around him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, he says. Remarkably, Paul does not hold it against them for the deserting him, but nonetheless, Paul understood what it felt like to have those who should have rallied, those who should have come to his side, those who should have helped him, suddenly flee, and they're no longer there. Now, we don't know if he necessarily felt lonely in the midst of being deserted, but we can certainly understand how anybody in his shoes would have felt lonely, right? He had spent his life spreading the gospel, giving himself for many men and women, 
But when push came to shove, when he needed it most, no one stood by him. And so in all these things, friends, we can see the examples of those who followed the Lord and yet they experienced the pain of loneliness. And they had no one to physically turn to. But it's important to note that in each one of these circumstances, where did they turn? They turned to the Lord. They recognized that even though everyone else had deserted them, they looked to him. In fact, Paul here in 2 Timothy, the next verse says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. He recognized that even though he was deserted by all humans, he still had the Lord with him. And so we can see that loneliness entered the world because of sin. For most, if not all, loneliness is experienced involuntarily. No one usually signs up to say, yeah, I want to be lonely. But friends, there was one man who did experience loneliness voluntarily, who embraced loneliness, and that takes us to Act 3 in this story. Loneliness embraced. And with that, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We needed to be rescued from the loneliness that would come through Jesus Christ. At the heart of the gospel is the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As the divine Son of God, he went to the cross to bear the weight of sin and to pay for it with his own blood. And it was there upon the cross, friends, that Jesus experienced the greatest loneliness that could ever be experienced. We see this. We see the, the curtain pulled back, as it were, in the cries upon the cross. It's recorded here in Matthew 27, verse 46. Read verse, pick up verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these words, Jesus quoted the 22nd Psalm, applying them to himself and his situation. But why did he say this? Why did he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment, mysteriously, he was being rejected by his heavenly father. We already know that he was rejected by men. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 3 where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But he wasn't just abandoned by people, but he was also forsaken by God. But why? Why? In his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, Pastor C.J. Mahaney describes it this way. He says, he who for all eternity has never been alone is now wholly abandoned. Such utter desolation has never even existed before in all eternity because of the infinite love and fellowship of the Trinity, which can never be broken. But now, the incarnate Son must be forsaken by the Father because the Father is holy. And there in the Father's sight is the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable as R.C. Sproul termed it. It's the monstrous sight 
of the unbounded totality of human sin resting upon one man. And therefore, that man must be utterly removed from the presence of the holy God. Utterly separated as far as the east is from the west. Friends, Jesus was utterly alone upon the cross. As the sin of the world was placed upon him, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And because of this, the, the Father, being the holy God that he is, was unable to look upon his Son, and therefore Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And friends, it is because Jesus cried out those words that for those of us that place our faith in him, we never have to cry that. We never have to experience the forsaken, being forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken so we could be forgiven. He became completely alone so you would never have to be. He opened the way so that sinners like you and I could know the love of his Father. A love that no human can even give. It's mere echoes of the Father's love. And so we need to look upon Jesus this morning. I invite you to look with the eyes of faith upon Jesus, upon the cross, who was there forsaken by the Father, who was there experienced utter loneliness. But see his love in his sacrifice. See his compassion for us in our sin and see the forgiveness that he offers. If you will believe in him, you can know the joy and the comfort of never being alone again. He has said that he will never leave us or forsake us, both in this life and for all of eternity. We need only to cry out to him and place our faith in him. Well, we've looked at the first three acts of the story. Let's look briefly here at the fourth, the final one, and that is loneliness eradicated. Loneliness eradicated. Again, we're following creation, fall, redemption, and now we're looking at restoration, that final end of history where everything is headed in the end of days, what heaven, the ultimate new heavens and new earth will be like. And that is, it tells us that in the end, everything will be right. Everything will be perfect. And we will have a right relationship with God and God will come and dwell upon the earth and we'll be able to dwell with him in perfect harmony. And in that day, loneliness will be no more. There will never again be the experience of loneliness felt upon this earth. Along with every other effect of sin, loneliness will be eradicated. The Bible says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. It says that he will dwell with us on earth. And so heaven would not be heaven if someone could be lonely. And so we know that we can look with hope to that day when loneliness will be no more. So these four acts are what the Bible says in a broad scope about loneliness. We need to comprehend this story if we're going to find ourselves in it. Understanding the fact that we live in between after the fall, that, that loneliness is part of what it's being life in this fallen world and yet we know that there is one who has redeemed us so that we don't have to be lonely and that we know we can look with hope one day when that will ultimately be, be removed. But there's a second part of the strategy for overthrowing loneliness in our lives. I've entitled it Cultivate Friendships Locally. First, comprehend uh, loneliness biblically, but secondly, cultivate friendships locally. And I don't mean this just like 
uh, civically, like in your neighborhood necessarily, but I am talking about proximity to you. Proximity and relationship. And the first way to battle loneliness is you've got to cultivate your relationship with God. And so we first need to draw near to God. This is the first way to cultivate friendship, is to draw near to God. James 4.8 is clear, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, the scriptures invite you to draw near to the Lord. And the scriptures reveal that, that God is with his people. He is near to those who call on him. And so that means that you and I simply need to call out to our Heavenly Father. Because he hasn't gone anywhere. Psalm 145 verse 18 says that the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Psalm 34 verse 18 the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Of course, Psalm 46, verse 1, our God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And as Seth read for us earlier in the service from John chapter 15, that Jesus no longer calls his disciples servants, but calls them friends. And he says that greater love is no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. Well, then who is the greatest friend? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's laid down his life for us and he calls us friends. And so friends, that means that you and I are never alone. We might be placed in solitary confinement, but we are never alone. I learned that story, that reality became vivid to me in, in, in high school when I learned the story of Richard Wormbrand, the pastor in, in, in the, behind the Iron Curtain who was then put into, I believe, nine years of solitary confinement and released later to tell the story. But to tell of how he walked with God, how he was able to commune with God in the very difficult circumstances of a tiny cell. But he was never alone. So friends, if you are feeling lonely, I ask you, how are you doing in cultivating your relationship with God? Are you drawing near to him? Are you resting in him? Are you praying to him? It is a relationship we have the privilege of having and yet so often we assume it rather than take advantage and delight in it. And so we can all draw near to the Lord who is with each one of us even now. But there's a second part of this cultivating friendships and that is, secondly, cultivate relationships in your family. If we're talking locally, relationships, friendships right around us, it begins with those in our own house. You see, God designed the family to be a small community where we can experience the warmth of relationships and the comfort of being loved. But as you said, sin destroys these relationships too. But our relationships with our families need to be cultivated in order to thrive. And if we invest in those relationships, we will experience the joy of friendship within our own home. It's so easy if we do not cultivate the relationships for things to coast, for things to go on autopilot and the relationship actually deteriorates. The, 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 the current takes us the other direction if we aren't seeking to, to grow in our love and our care and our intimacy. And so for those of us that are married, this means first and foremost, we need to be cultivating our relationship with our spouse. We must work at it. We must continue to cultivate love and intimacy. For those of us with kids, how are you doing in pursuing relationships with your children? Or are they just there? Or are you intentionally investing and in building that relationship with them? And we can then expand to, to 
other extended parts of our family, siblings, grandparents, nieces, nephews. These are relationships that God has placed in your life for you to experience the warmth of connection. But the question is, will you cultivate them? And let me just suggest that one of the best ways we can cultivate better relationships in our homes is to put our screens aside. Both the big screens in which we watch things and the little screens that are in our pockets. These very things keep us from the real relationships in front of us. We might think that we're connecting with a lot of people. But friends, this deteriorates relationships that are right in front of us if we are engrossed in it. But the third strategy of building friendships locally is to build relationships, build friendships with believers. Build friendships with believers. Now, we can have friendships with unbelievers. I'm not saying don't have those friendships. But friendships with unbelievers will only be able to go so far. We can never share the deepest part of us with those who don't know the Lord. They'll always be lacking something. But with Christians, with a fellow believer, we share the same Christ, the same spirit, the same faith, the same scriptures. And so we're able to build a friendship with them that goes deep and is lasting. And so to build friendships, there are five ingredients that we must do. If you're going to commit to building friendships in this local body with other Christians, you must, number one, get over yourself. (laughs) That's for all of us. We all need to get over ourselves. As I said, sin pulls us inward. But in order to build friendships, we must seek to go outward. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, we've got to care about other people more than we care about ourselves. Otherwise, friendships don't work. Friendships are all just about taking if it's all about us. And we're going to ditch people to the side if they don't serve us. And that's not what a friendship is. Friendship is a deep connection, an intimate relationship of love and loyalty to somebody else. But not only do we need to get over ourselves, but secondly, we need to invite and initiate. Invite and initiate. And maybe for the introverts in here, that might seem scary. But we can't always wait for someone else to initiate. This is often one of the most crippling realities of loneliness is that we sit by ourselves and we, are, we, we, we cry out internally without actually saying anything that someone else would come to us. And yet, we might be able to meet our need and somebody else's if we would just cross the room and have a conversation, invite someone over for dinner or out to coffee. And so I encourage you, invite and initiate in your small groups, in your pew, out in the courtyard. Move towards people to begin to build relationships and friendships. This will begin to help you to overcome the feelings of loneliness. So often when I hear people say, I just don't feel connected, and we ask, are you seeking to build relationships? Are you seeking to reach out to other people, inviting people into your life? And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the answer is no. And so I encourage you to invite and initiate. But the third ingredient is you must be open. You must be open. Friendships don't happen without transparency. You can't say, let's get together and be a friend and all you do is talk about the weather. Those are not relationships that last. Those are not relationships in which there is something shared and in which you will call them in the, the, the thick and the, the thin. 
we must be open with ourselves and that can grow over time. You don't have to divulge, open up the dump truck on the first uh, coffee, but um, there still needs to be, uh, there still needs to be transparency. And we, that's hard because we're scared and wondering what is this person going to do with this information? And that leads us to the fourth ingredient, that is trust. There has to be a degree of trust and trust is going to grow and trust is going to build. It doesn't happen overnight but you must be, must be willing to trust. Does that mean that you'll never be harmed by a fellow believer? No. But the word of God tells us how we can deal with those things and we can find resolution and we can find healing. But the fifth piece of building friendships with believers is practice the one another's. The one another's is a label for all the commands in scripture that tell us what to do towards one another. A sampling of them are these. Number one, we're called more than any other command to love one another. To love one another. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Proverbs 17, 17, a, a friend loves at all times. We practice these things within the body of Christ. We also encourage, encourage speaking words of truth, speaking words of encouragement to build up, to strengthen 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We must open our mouths and encourage one another. We can't just be the silent friend who sits there. We also need to, need to encourage. But sometimes we also need to warn or admonish one another when we're in sin. And that's, that's the other command, warn or admonish. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This admonishing, this saying, hey listen friend, hey fellow, brother or sister, don't go this direction. I'm seeing this in your life. This is, this is wrong. This isn't right. This is how we warn and admonish in love. We also pray for one another. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So friends, if we want to overcome loneliness in our lives and help others, we need to see that these factors are at play, especially within the body of Christ. It is, the Proverbs say, it is the fool who isolates himself, who pulls away from a relationship that doesn't participate in these different ingredients and can sit unto himself. And yet I know this is hard. This is challenging. But I pray that we, in the power of the Spirit, would be able to be good friends to one another. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I a good friend? Am I a good friend to the people in my life? Am I doing these things with the people that God has placed before me? Am I cultivating friendships? And so friends, this morning, we need to realize that it's not God's desire for us to be lonely. He sent his son to the lonely cross so that you and I can have a friend at all times. The answer to our loneliness is not through government programs, but the, through the Lord himself and the people he has given us in our families and in our church. I'll end by saying that if you feel lonely and lost this morning, then please reach out to someone, a friend, a family member, or someone here in the church. We want to help all those who are hurting have hope in Christ. Let's bow together as the worship team comes up to sing a final song. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us that we are not alone, that we have a friend at all times in Jesus who sacrificed himself 
who experienced utter loneliness there upon the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you did that for us, that you left the, the comforts of heaven to come, that you might redeem us from our sin and from the loneliness that our sin creates. I pray, Father, for those who are here this morning who have experienced the deep pains of feeling lonely, unconnected, isolated. Father, may you give them hope. May you help them to be able to find connections here at the church and among others in their lives, Father, that you might remind them, most of all, of your presence with them and that Jesus is their greatest friend. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.